This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. First uh, Corinthians, a turn to chapter 6. Uh, we're in a section of Scripture where Paul is seeking to help these Corinthians establish a kingdom culture that's different than the world around them. And some of these subjects that we're presently in are quite difficult, but uh, they're also incredibly practical, especially in the world in which we live, and they make an incredible difference when we live under the lordship of this kind of instruction. 1 Corinthians 6. In June of 1977, there was a decision rendered that changed the practice of law. Major change took place in 1977. The Phoenix law firm of Bates and Osteen took out a small ad in the Arizona Star, which was the state paper in Arizona, to list some of its routine legal work. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but up until 1977, to advertise, to aggressively advertise in the legal profession was banned. And so when Bates and Osteen took out this advertisement, they went against the normal practice of law firms and lawyers around the country and against the bar of the state of Arizona as well as the national bar. And so the Arizona bar quickly disciplined this law firm for what they considered inappropriate advertising. On this particular occasion, though, Bates and Osteen resisted, and a lawsuit ensued, and over time, it went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, where on June 26th of 1977, in a five to four decision, the U.S. Supreme Court declared that lawyers everywhere had the constitutional right to advertise their services. Now, with that decision, a major shift took place both in the practice and the public persona of the legal profession. In fact, in the decade that followed, a whole new change swept over America because lawyers began to advertise on radio and television and their advertisements filled the airways with a steady drumbeat of messages. In some instances, subtly, and in other instances, not so subtly, inviting and encouraging the American public to take one another to court. And the American public has accepted that invitation. And we have sued one another in all kinds of different fashions to what we have as a lawsuit explosion that has enveloped our entire country. Today, it seems there are no accidents anymore. Just gross negligence, right? It seems today that the person, or the only person who's responsible for my life is the other guy. And I have all kinds of people when I get an accident who call me and who help me and who tell me and promise me that they can prove it's the other guy's fault. And if they can't do it, then I don't owe them one dime, right? Justice, it seems, more than ever today in our legal system, must compete with greed before the bar. Doctors pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for malpractice insurance. I don't know if you're aware of how much a physician has to pay just for malpractice insurance. 
some over $100,000 a year just to protect themselves and their reputation from legal suits against them, many times not because they've done anything wrong, but because they're an easy target for a quick fortune. Warning labels get longer and longer on products, many times more and more ridiculous. You know, like, do not use this hair dryer while taking a shower. <laughs> I saw one that said, with a Stanley jackhammer, do not hold a Stanley jackhammer while in a domestic dispute. <laughs> yeah, I guess not. It might get away from you, right? This morning I went to McDonald's on my way to church and I picked up a cup of coffee. And on this coffee cup it says, hot, 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 hot. And below it it says, caution, contents, hot. Well, you know why McDonald's did that? Remember? Lady picked up the hot cup of coffee and put it between her bare legs and took off and spilled it all over and burned herself and then sued McDonald's and won a very handsome $100,000 lawsuit. So lawsuits today go beyond justice. Now they fill the pocketbooks of many who are just simply, simply wanting to make a quick buck. And some of those lawsuits become absolutely bizarre. For instance, the man who would go to the library in New Jersey daily, uh, the problem was he would not take a bath. And so as the months went on, he smelled fouler and fouler. So much so that finally the librarian asked him to leave. He refused and then was forced to leave with good common sense, I would imagine. But he felt like it was harassment. So he got him a lawyer and sued for harassment and won a $250,000 judgment against the local library. A New York couple paid for a gravesite for their pet dog and uh, expected him to be buried there. Instead, the uh, pet cemetery just threw the dog into a mass grave and the couple found out about it. Now that was wrong. But the couple got a flamboyant lawyer who worked the jury up into a frenzy about the mental distress that it had caused this couple. And so the jury awarded this couple $1.2 million for mental distress. Now let me tell you, that is a dog that I would like to get to know. <laughs> or in Salt Lake City, an elderly lady took a pair of pliers to open up a 7-Up bottle. And when the cap flew off and hit her in the eye, she sued the 7-Up co Company and won a jury award of $10.7 million for that accident. A mugger robbed a tourist in San Francisco and a cab driver happened to notice the robbery taking place, jumped out of his cab, ran down the robber, tackled the lawyer, and in tackling him, broke his leg. And so the robber sued the cab driver for harmful injury and won $25,000 more in his theft. Now when Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians in 56 AD, he addressed a people caught up in lawsuits. There was a lawsuit explosion in the Greek world just at this time that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. I want you to listen to the remarkable comment by historian William Barclay. He says, Jews did not ordinarily go to law in the public law courts at all, but it was far otherwise with the Greeks in cities like Athens and Corinth. They were a lawsuit-minded people. They were in fact famous 
well, in fact, notorious for their love of going to law. It was one of their chief amusements and entertainments. In fact, every Greek man was more or less a lawyer and spent a great deal of time listening or deciding law cases. And so it became clear that the Greeks brought their tendencies to go to court into this newfound church at Corinth. You see, lawsuits were a major part of Corinthian culture. Lawsuits are now a major part of American culture. But for those who take seriously, and I hope you're one of these, who take seriously kingdom culture, and who take seriously the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and who take seriously the revelation of the Holy Scriptures that we're about to look at, we will find there a bolder and more noble way to handle the legitimate disputes that will happen from time to time among us in this auditorium. This better way is found in the first 11 verses or the first half of chapter 6. So let's begin looking at verse 1. He says, does any one of you, when he has a case, a lawsuit against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? And when you read that, there are two things we need to clarify right from the very beginning. Who is my neighbor and who are these unrighteous that he's talking about going before? Well, if you look down at verse 6, you'll find a clarification. Paul kind of amplifies a little bit, little bit. And he says, but brother goes to law against brother. In other words, Christian goes to law against Christian. And that before unbelievers. So that's a definition of unrighteous. And so in other words, he's saying here that what he's really talking about is taking another Christian into court. Now, I think the reason he uses the word neighbor in verse 1 is because he's closing the proximity even closer. He's not just talking about any Christian. He's talking about Christians that go to church with you. Your neighbor. So it might be translated verse 1 this way. Does anyone dare to take a fellow Christian that you go to church with to court? How dare you? And what about the word unrighteous in verse, verse 1? Well, it says unbeliever in verse 6. I'm, I think the reason he changes that is because the word unrighteous here does not mean corrupt. It's not talking about the judges are corrupt. It just mean, mainly means at this point in time in history, the only place when you went to go to court, it was filled not with Christians, but with unbelievers. And of course, that's not necessarily true today. In fact, we have many of our courts where the judge sits who's a solid Christian, and we have a lot of lawyers, many of whom are in our body, who are strong believers in Jesus Christ. In fact, not long ago, I had the opportunity to go down to my hometown where I grew up and watch one of my best high school friends get installed as the second district judge over in North Louisiana. And let me tell you, that almost felt like a revival. I mean, at the beginning, he had several of his friends come up in the installation and talk about who he was, and they talked about his his fine Christian character. Uh, one of the Supreme Court justices from Louisiana came and talked about, if you know Wayne Smith, there's one thing you know, that everything starts with God and God alone. And they praised him for that. And there were prayers over him. In fact, I got to do the end prayer. Of course, I had to take a little shot at him before I did that. I reminded him how far he had come because years ago, I remember he and I skinny dipping in the Holiday Inn pool at two in the morning and the police taking us away, and all Wayne said the whole way is, please don't tell my daddy, please don't tell my daddy. I said, Wayne, you've come a long way to sit on this bench. But he is an absolutely outstanding Christian. 
And then we went over and had a reception in the First Baptist Church there. Now, that wasn't true in first century Corinth. But even if it was true, I think this principle still applies. So this principle still applies even to our day, and that's this. Even with courts that have at places a Christian judge or a lawyer that's a Christian, the point is, in the church among us, in our legitimate disputes and disagreements, and we're going to have them from time to time, because we are a body that's so large and there are people who are involved in business together and marriage and all the other things, that when those break out, they should be, they should be settled, not in a public way. And you go, well, why is that? Well, Paul wants to let us know why he feels so strongly about that with the next two verses. But these next two verses give us also a peek into the future. And that's why I've outlined it that way uh, in your outlines. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, do you not know, now listen to this, because this is going to blow your mind a little bit. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law court? Verse 3, do you not know that we shall judge angels? Then how much more the matters of this life? Now, I know some of you, when you read it, you'll say, what? This is a mind-boggling statement that comes up every so often. If you're a good student of the Scripture, every once in a while when you're reading from Genesis to Revelation, you're going to come across a verse that suddenly gives you a little peek into the future. And here is one of those. Paul has just dropped a theological whopper on us about our future. Listen, we... Believe it or not, we will judge the world. And he said, now wait a minute, Dan Gerald last week told us we weren't going to judge the world, that we weren't supposed to judge people outside the church, and, and that seems to be inconsistent what, with what you're saying. Dan's right. We're not to judge the world in this life. But what Paul is doing and dropping on us, and he's moving right on by, but we've got to stop and plant the flag for a while and, and kind of digest this. He's saying, this, but we will judge the world in another time, and in another life. You see, what verses 2 and 3 serve as is a porthole into another time. Much like the Hubble telescope that we have that's circling our globe, you know, it looks into the heavens at galaxies and stars and records them, but even as it records them, it's recording those stars from another time, not right now, from another time in our past. You know what Scripture does every so often? It records for us another time. It gives us a little peek into another time, but not into our past, but another time into our future through the light of prophecy. And that's what he's doing right here. He's prophesying. Everyone knows from the Scripture, at least we believe this as Christians, that Jesus Christ is going to come again. We believe that. But do you know that in His coming, He is going to set up a kingdom on this earth? Scripture says it's going to be a kingdom for a thousand years to demonstrate His righteousness before He ends it all and starts again. And in that thousand-year reign on earth, it will involve a unique mixture of citizens, not like today, but a, a group of citizens that involves angels as well as people, and believers as well as unbelievers, with a government unlike any other, His government. But now listen, here's the key. But in His government... Guess who serves as the judiciary? It's us. 
we will be the magistrates and the judges of that world. If that sounds incredible, it is incredible. But like the Hubble telescope giving us images of stars and galaxies that once were, what this scripture is telling us is of a time that will be. Now some of you are saying, well, now come on. And that's not, does the rest of scripture say that? Well, yeah, I want you to see a couple other places where it says that, just to give you a sampling. Look in Daniel chapter 7. When you turn back to Daniel chapter 7, you're turning back to a time where Daniel is prophesying in his day about the future. In fact, he's just finished a discourse in chapter 7 about this huge world political figure that we know as Antichrist. And he says, Antichrist is at the end of time and he'll set up a world government and then at the second coming of Christ, that government will be destroyed. And then the end will come with Jesus Christ. Then there'll be a new beginning. So in this end, notice in verse 26, it says, but the court will sit for judgment and he, that is this Antichrist, his dominion, his judgment, his rulership will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. But now we start the next of time. Verse 27. And then, now listen very closely, and then the sovereignty, that is the rule, the authority, the dominion, the ability to judge and lead, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to who? The people called the saints of the highest one. That's who that rule is going to be given to. Listen to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. Turn over to Matthew chapter 19. Now, the disciples have just talked about, you know, them having left everything to follow Jesus Christ and maybe they're a little bit discouraged and they ask, you know, what's, what's in this for us? And that's a good question. Don't you want sometimes when you've been beaten down and you're still trying to follow Jesus Christ, you want to ask him, hey, what's in this for me? That's what they ask him at this point. And I want you to look at Matthew 19, verse 28, how he answers them. He says, and Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, now all of a sudden we got a porthole to the future, not to this generation, not even in this life, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, and you'll judge the twelve tribes of Israel. But it goes beyond you. Everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or farms or mothers or children or anything, even churches for Jeff and Lloyd, you're going to have that same future. Because the first is going to be last. And the last will one day be first. In Revelation, when Jesus Christ comes again, it says in Revelation 20, as John the Apostle speaks, he says, And I saw thrones, and the saints sat upon those thrones, and judgment was given to them, and those saints will reign with Christ for a thousand years. <laughs> That's some incredible theology. It's mind-stretching theology. You say, what does that have to do with lawsuits? Well, Paul is arguing from the greater, the future, to the lesser right now. His reasoning is this. It's on your outline. It's if one day we're going to judge the whole world with the reign of Christ, we, if one day we'll even rule over those who right now are superior to us, the angelic world, then shouldn't we be able, <laughs> with that kind of future, to be able to handle some little small disputes that are going on right now in this time? See his argument there? The answer, of course, is obvious. 
But for these Corinthians to rely on the court system to answer their disputes rather than on what they already possessed, not just a future, but they had the Holy Spirit within them. They had a clear statement of the Word of God. They had each other, and some of them were mature. For them not to rally those resources and work out their disputes, whatever they were, among themselves, rather than step backwards into a world that one day will not exist, rather than to step forward by faith towards a world that one day will exist. That's tragic. It, it discounts everything both now and in the future. It acts like it's not going to happen. Why are you acting as if you are totally incompetent is what Paul is saying. Look at verse 5. He says, shame on you. Shame on you. I say this to your shame. It is so that, or is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? You see, in Paul's mind, there are better choices than taking someone to court. Let me tell you, for some of you, this is going to be extremely relevant. Because the day will come where you will face not just another person, but the authority of this Scripture that we're about to look at. What are my choices if I have a dispute with another brother or sister in Christ? Well, there are three listed in this passage. The first we've already mentioned, but I'll mention it again, except I won't say call it taking somebody to court. I'm going to call it public humiliation to the cause of Christ, because that's what it is. It's where a fellow church member gets involved together with another church member in the church in what is commonly called the Christian deal. Always beware of the Christian deal, where the word Christian overrides the deal. I've seen so many guys say, oh, we're, we're here, we're brothers in Christ, let's just do a deal. And oftentimes what that means is let's just not think about the details. And inevitably, not thinking about the details and good business practice leads to problems. And when those problems come, there are then misunderstandings between these Christians, miscommunication, oftentimes there's mismanagement, and people get hurt, they lose their money, everybody has their side, and their side is the right side and everybody else is to blame, and suddenly how could you treat me like this because you're a Christian, and the other person's saying the same thing, pointing their same finger back at them, and they get alienated with one another. And in the midst of that, at least under this choice, rather than trying to submit it to some objective, wise, spiritual leadership, they instead drag one another into court to get all they can and forgetting totally about the relationships that are so valuable to God, the testimony of the Christian life that is so valuable to God, and the truth. Because they don't have the truth. They just got their side. And one side is always half the truth. And when they do that, I want you to know, the world laughs. They see these guys, oh, don't those guys go over to Fellowship Bowser? Can you believe what they're doing to each other in court? And they just laugh. Yeah, they say they got the truth. Yeah, yeah, that's the Christian life, man. I'd like to see what paganism is. The world just laughs. And the kingdom of God weeps because of that public humiliation. Well, there are two much better choices, and that's what follows in the next few verses. In verse 5 is the choice 
that I call church arbitration. It's in the last part of verse 5. It says, when he says, is it so that there is not among you one wise man? There should be one wise man, at least one who could help you decide. The word decide, there's a real colorful word in Greek. It means a person who's willing to wade into this tangled web of emotions and personalities, who's a patient person who can handle the hurts and the accusations that people sling at one another as they're trying to work out their differences. But after all is said and done, when everybody thinks they're right, he can patiently guide them to a position where they can work out their disagreement in a godly manner. That's what he's talking about with this one wise man. You know one thing I'm proud of about this church? We have a number of such people in this church who can handle disputes just that way. And whether you know it or not, over the years, a number of very hurtful lawsuits have been avoided because of the quiet but effective arbitration work of such men. You know, it's a sign of the church that you don't see very much. Because it's not displayed, and we would never display it. We don't bring it out in the public because it needs to be resolved in a dignified manner in private. Just like Dan talked about last week in working to restore an unrepentant man or woman. That has happened hundreds of times with nobody leaving the church in a quiet and glorious manner. Same way with lawsuits. And it's because of the quiet but effective leadership of wise men. One of our elders, uh, Randy Mayno, who also serves as an elder here, has published a little booklet that's entitled Christian Mediation and Arbitration, in which he outlines kind of the mediation process that you can go through. And I recommended it today. You can get it free in our bookstore, but everybody ran up there and took a copy, so there are none for you. But if you would like one, if you would like one, you can go after the service and sign up for one, and we'll have you a copy next week that you can take home with you in that regard. But there is a very clear process to work out our business differences, our personal differences with one another and it's called church arbitration. And I believe of all the choices, it's the preferred choice. But let me tell you, to have that available and not submit to it suggests that one lack faith, that one lack a desire for the real truth, that one have a low view of the witness that gives to the world, that one not have much regard for the gospel or for relationships or for the witness of the church that they attend. Church arbitration is a key to church unity. There's a third choice. It's found in verses 7 and 8. I call it personal resignation because remember it says, it'll say in these verses about being wronged and defrauded. The more I looked at those words, the more I started realizing that those words don't necessarily have to be words of fact, but they are words of emotion. Now, they may be words of fact too. But you know, anytime you have a disagreement, you feel wronged, Right? You feel defrauded. It feels like the other guy's taking advantage of you, and he feels the same way. But notice in these verses, it says, hey, if you can't work it out through arbitration, here's another way you could work it out. Verse 7, it says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Rather than you wronging and defrauding another person. Now, that's hard truth here. But what Paul is saying is, if your brother won't submit, he's in the church and he just says, I can't agree with this. and I, That doesn't seem right to me, even with an arbitrary. And he says, I just can't do it that way. Then you can, you can handle the situation. You can just simply resign yourself to the loss that's going to ensue. 
Now that's radical, but Jesus spoke in those kind of radical terms. He said in Matthew 5, 40, he said, if your brother sues you for your shirt, give him your shirt and your coat. Because by that you declare a greater kingdom. So in such kind of disputes over money, property, or possessions, instead of fighting and pursuing a suit against one another or uh, simply saying, I'm not going to listen to that from the church, you know what you can do to your brother in this church? You can say, okay, you can have what you want. I'll take the loss. I know we're never going to agree to this, so I'll just resign myself to it. And by letting that go and letting him have what he says is rightfully his, even though you're never going to agree to that, you make a value statement in resigning yourself to him about what you think is important. You think relationships are important? Witness is important? Unity is important? And you are saying, I believe in an ultimate justice. Now what does he do? By receiving and taking all of it, he makes a value statement too, doesn't he? He makes a value statement that relationships weren't that important. And that having something is more important than anything else. And everybody who's involved, when there's been a personal resignation, knows these value statements are being demonstrated through these people. Personal resignation is a hard step, but it's, it's, a, it's an honorable step that requires deep spiritual conviction about life and justice because it entrusts this issue by resigning to an eternity rather than to the moment. Now, I want to again say, of the choices, the best choice is always church arbitration. So those are the three choices in resolving disputes in the church. The state, you can choose the state in public humiliation. You can choose the church in church arbitration. Or you can choose your heart in personal resignation. Good practical advice. Now that being said, I want to mention one very important clarification that I think is problematic to this passage. What about a dispute that involves not only personal differences where you think you're right and the other person thinks they're right, but it also involves overt sin, like Dan talked about last week, where it's not just that we think we're right, but one person in this dispute is in sin, and it's clear that they are obviously wrong. And as that dispute gets in some kind of arbitration, that sinful practice is pointed out. And rather than that person repenting of that sin in order to resolve the issue, they instead leave the church and continue the dispute outside the church. What then? Well, I want to say that uh, that needs to be discussed here for a moment because this will happen. Or let's say there is a Christian businessman here at FBC who comes and shows some of the spiritual leaders that another businessman who is in this church has swindled him out of hundreds of thousands of dollars about to wipe him out. And so they go in both those cases, the spouse and the wounded businessman to some spiritual leaders for involvement. And after some time of involvement, getting all the facts clear, they find these two sinful people and they call on them for repentance. But both the immoral spouse and the clearly scandalous business partner, rather than responding, they leave the church. In fact, the immoral person goes outside the church in his affair and now divorces his spouse and takes him to court. 
And the businessman leaves and moves to Conway, let's say, and sets up a business with the very money he stole from a person who goes to this church. Now here's the question. Does 1 Corinthians 6 apply here? Not having arbitration, not wanting to be involved in public humiliation, do you just resign yourself and say, i got to take the loss? I would answer, no. No, 1 Corinthians does not apply in those two situations for the following reasons. First, 1 Corinthians deals with legitimate disputes and differences, not with exposed, unrepentant sin that it requires church discipline instead. Secondly, 1 Corinthians deals with legitimate disputes and differences between those in the church, not between a Christian in the church and one who's left the church and whose persistent rebellion in their proven, unrepentant sin actually calls into question their profession of faith. Now that doesn't mean we're going to render a judgment about whether they're a Christian or not, but let me tell you, the Scriptures as well as your life, anybody who leaves this church or any church under a cloud of unrepentant sin that's known and proven and continues to live that way over a period of time, let me tell you, it's it's going to make your mind go, was that person ever really a Christian? The Scriptures leave it like that as well. It leaves it in doubt whether they really came to know Jesus Christ. Now, according to Matthew 18, to leave the church in unrepentant sin, as Dan pointed out last week, calls for one to be treated by the church more as an outsider than an insider. In fact, Jesus said, let them be to you as a Gentile or tax gatherer. The point being, they're not to be treated as a brother or sister in Christ no matter what they claim to be out there. They can go all day saying, I'm still a Christian. But that's not the point. Under Matthew 18, they're to be treated as a non-Christian. And so what should be the response of the man or woman whose spouse committed immorality and now is taking them to court in a divorce settlement? Should they use 1 Corinthians 6? My answer is no. No, they shouldn't and be wronged further. But what they should do, if necessary, is take their marriage partner, not as a Christian, but as an adulterer, into court. And as they take them into court to fight using an honorable legal system to protect their rights and their family. And what should be the response of the Christian businessman who was swindled out of thousands of dollars by a so-called brother? 1 Corinthians 6? I say the answer is no. And he should not be made to feel by any Christian here guilty are pressured to take the loss as if that was the only real spiritual thing he could do. No, he should take his partner to criminal court, not as a Christian, but as a proven thief, and get his money back. You see, my point is is that 1 Corinthians 6 does not deal with all lawsuits in some general universal way, but 1 Corinthians 6 deals with specific lawsuits involving legitimate disputes between those within the church or even those within churches in order to give testimony of the power of God. Now, with your mind spinning around those details, let me do to you what Paul did to the Corinthians, and that's pull your mind out of those details to a bigger picture as he closes up this section of Scripture starting in verse 9. 
Because what Paul wants to do is give them a bigger picture of life. Look what he says. He suddenly switches gears and says, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, all those who are in this hardened way of life. Not when they just fall momentarily into that practice. We're talking about a lifestyle. Don't you know that they shall not inherit the kingdom of God and such were some of you? Don't you remember that? You were, you were all these kind of people. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of our God, you were changed. That's the bigger picture. You're to live differently in a kingdom culture, not in an American culture. Listen, the bigger picture here in 1 Corinthians 6 here at the end is not lawsuits. Now listen to me very carefully. In fact, you can write down. The bigger picture is how you want to be known. It's how you want to be known. And he gives you two categories of being known here at the very end. If you want your way without any examination by spiritual arbiters, you're just going to have it your way. That person was clearly at fault. I deserve to have this. I don't want to listen to anybody go through all the receipts and the business records and stuff and try to bring some kind of objectivity. My friend was wrong. Give me what I deserve. No more questions. If you want to be known that way, or if you want to be known as a person who says, I want my money and I want my rights at any cost. I don't care if that person gets mad and I never have a relationship and I have to go to the second service because he goes to the first. Or if you want pleasure without any principle, because it mentions pleasures in there, I'm going to have my pleasure fulfilled even if it breaks the Word of God, whether it be in a perverse way or an immoral way. I'm going to do it. I don't care. Don't tell me I can't. If you want that, then when there is a discussion going on and you mention about your Christian life and what church you go to, when you leave, you know what they're going to say about you? When you walk away, when they know those practices are going on, they're not going to say, what a fine Christian. They're going to say, you know that guy's a thief. You know that guy swindled such and such, it goes over to this other church out of thousands of dollars. You know what that guy did to his wife after 20 years? And how he set her up and then took her to court and left her without anything after she sacrificed her career for his career and it and worked all the way through his career to set him up so he could have that great practice and then he left her for the secretary. You know what he is? He's an adulterer. You can come back trying to, you know, walk around like this great Christian going to church, but nobody believes it. Nobody. Because your life has already spoken volumes. If you want that for your name, then don't walk into the Lordship of Christ and make the Scripture something irrelevant that's just time-bound to the past. You can have another name. And it's when you go through disputes and you have problems in your marriage or with another friend and you've got your emotions stirred up to a fever pitch. But even with that, and, and all that you believe as being right, you still are willing to submit yourself under the Scriptures and to objective people. I can remember 
marriages in my office where both parties were so sure they were right, but one of the most glorious things they did is as I spoke words that they did not want to hear, made them madder and all get out. You know what they did? They gritted their teeth and said, okay, I'll do it if you think it's right. I'd try to point out it is right. See, it says it here. They don't feel it, but they still had the courage to live it. You know what happens in those people? Whether they lose their disputes or whether, you know, uh, they still have trouble and all that. The point is, they put a glory over their name. And when they walk away and there's a crowd from a crowd, one guy will lean over to them and say, you know what, gang? That is one fine Christian. Washed. Justified. Sanctified. That's what they say about him. And you know, God is up there with the former saying, you know what? I'm not going to give you anything. But to the latter, He's saying, I'm going to give you everything. It's not a choice about just lawsuits. It's a choice about your character. It's a choice about your witness. It's a choice about your future. Choice is yours. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this powerful section of Scripture that deals with the real world in which we live, but it deals with it in a real way. But it also declares a real kingdom. And I thank You for it, as hard as it is. And may You lead and guide each one of us, Lord, to a place where we would make the choice for a good name. Because You're a good God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.